Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Julie Threlkeld. There was this incredible sexual tension that started appearing in the apartment, and one night we had to break it. And... (laughs) Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Haggis Horns behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Oddballs, my very favorite kind of people. Uh, Three stories told in three different cities, and this is a real treat of a show today. I'll tell you, I am having... um, a really, really, really rough summer on all fronts. You know, it's one of those weird times in life where everything seems to be going wrong or very worrisomely. And it is this show. I I keep thinking of specific stories that I've heard on this show that helps to keep me going. Little, you know, bits of insight people had or, or just stopping to think <laughs> well well it's not like I'm going through that yeah it's been kind of fascinating that way to see how the show really kind of resonates in my own psyche as a sort of um, foundation of wow yeah yeah I've really learned some life lessons I've really had some intense intimate vicarious experiences just from going through these stories that are actually helping me right now go through a really rough patch. And that's why I am so, so, so grateful. Well, of course, for all our storytellers and our staff, but for you, the listeners, that, you know, your passion and love for what we do here is ultimately what keeps us going. Um, because 10 years in, there are times when we're still wondering if we can keep going. And when I say 10 years, I now mean that pretty literally. Uh, August of 2009 was the month when the first Risk Live show happened at Arlene's Grocery in Manhattan. And October 6th was the day that the first podcast episode dropped. So we're entering into this phase now where we're going to start celebrating turning 10. And uh, pretty soon I'm going to make an announcement about how you can help us celebrate turning 10. So stay tuned for that. In a little bit, we're going to hear from an old favorite of ours, Julie Threlkeld, wonderful storyteller based in New York. But before that, a story that was shared the last time that Risk was in Pittsburgh. This was a little while back here. This is Todd Schaefer with a story we call Guernsey. So my lease was up, it was more likely I'd cut my own hand off than use it to sign up for another year in the horrible generic box of an apartment where I was living. And I had a plan to move to a neighborhood in the city. I was hoping to upgrade my apartment, maybe find something with a little bit of character. So I go to check this place out, and I'm really liking the neighborhood. It's this older brick building. It's only got four apartments in it. It's on a side street. It's like a block from shops and restaurants. It's everything I could ever imagine. And then I get to see the inside. It's got big rooms, nine-foot ceilings, hardwood floors. There's a working fireplace with leaded glass windows on either side. 
I can't believe this is even available. And I'm just hoping that the landlord thinks I'm worthy. The landlord is showing me the place. And he's a big guy. He's kind of pasty and pale, and he's got wisps of free-range red hair. And his, his clothes are like somewhere between rumpled and homeless. He introduces himself, tells me his name is Guernsey. And he goes, I know, I know it's odd. It's a family name. You know, it, he seemed like, like a happy guy, and he was articulate and intelligent. And I wanted to make a good impression. And I'd stop there on my way to a softball game. And I'm hoping that he's going to like me, but I think nothing that I'm saying is making any impression whatsoever. But I think when he noticed my ass and my baseball pants, my odds of getting the place actually went up. (laughs) And we talk for a while, and he says, so, when would you like to move in? So I fill out an app. He says, don't, no, no, don't worry. It's a formality. The place is yours. So I'm ecstatic. I show up a couple days later to sign the lease. And I pull in behind the apartment, and there's Guernsey. He's on the back steps, just like he was the last time I was there. He's in a good mood. And as soon as I put my name on that, on the lease, you know, that legally binding document that's going to intertwine our lives for the next 12 months, Guernsey says, it'll be really good to have you here. And his tone changed just a little bit, but it seemed like I went from potential prize tenant to some form of captive. (laughs) So it's the end of the month, and it's time for me to start moving things in. And my girlfriend Cindy is with me. We drive down, pull up behind the building, and I realize the reality distortion field that I was using when I was looking at this place before, it's not working anymore. The building's more run down than I thought it was. And right next door, there's this little one-story house. And I hadn't really, I, I had you know, willed myself not to see this. If they were going for like a murdery Silence of the Lambs vibe, they just, they nailed it. <laughs> and then I look, and there's Guernsey, and he's standing on the back steps, exactly where he was the last two times I was here, like he hasn't moved. And maybe he hasn't moved, because he's wearing the same clothes he was wearing the last time I was here. Doesn't look like he's given him a break to hop in the shower. And it's 10 in the morning, and I see Budweiser's lined up on the railing next to him. And I realize the only way you get to be the kind of big that Guernsey is, is by just filtering huge, massive industrial quantities of alcohol through your body. (laughs) So he gives Cindy a very flat, nice to meet you, because she's a clear and disappointing sign that my ass isn't going to be any use to him while I'm living there. (laughs) And we ask him about the, the creepy little house, and he goes, well, I live there. He goes, I know it needs some work, but I'm going to get to that very shortly. So Guernsey hangs out the whole day. He's just there bantering with us and drinking while we're moving things in. And when it warmed up, he peels off the uh, hoodie that he'd been wearing. He says, oh, you've got to see this. It's my favorite shirt. And it's this sausage casing tight yellow T-shirt. And it's got a drawing of a guy in a raincoat on it. Only thing, the raincoat... It's, the raincoat's an uh, extra flap of fabric. So he pulls the flap back, and now it's a drawing of a guy with an erection exposing himself. <laughs> and that's his favorite shirt. And I'm thinking, where do, you, where do you get a shirt like that? Is there, is pedophile mart a thing? Was, it, was that like it from John Gacy's yard sale? And after I moved in, it was very clear that I was going to be seeing way more of Guernsey than I than I could have imagined. Because he worked from home, and his day job was standing behind the apartment building in the alley and drinking until he couldn't speak or stand. (laughs) And the neighbor across the alley, Tom, amazingly, he had chosen the same career. (laughs) And these guys were chatty drunks. And I parked behind the building, so every time I pulled in, they wanted to draw me into their pointless circular conversations. And Guernsey's always followed this same pattern. It's the same sort of pattern like if you're holding a cat, and the cat's really relaxed and happy. And then it realizes it probably shouldn't be that relaxed, and it turns around and bites you. So Guernsey would start out, he would be very relaxed and happy. And he'd be like, so how was your day today? Because on some level, he really wanted me to be his friend. And then 
he would switch and he'd have to throw something high-minded in. He'd, be, he'd say something like, the work they're doing at the Argonne Labs these days is amazing. Do you know about it? And that's because he, he also really wanted me to respect his intellect, and he had to prove he wasn't a hopeless drunk like Tom who hadn't been farther than five feet from his side all day. And then he'd switch to this passive-aggressive badass thing that he would do. And he would say things like, I've got guns hidden all, over, hidden all over my house. And I wouldn't hesitate to use them. Or he'd reminisce about the good old days. He'd go, I've had to sue just about everyone who's ever rented from me. I didn't want to, but it just, it, it just kind of worked out that way. So it was obvious that Guernsey had been in like this long, slow downward spiral long before I got there. But I'm there for probably nine months, and it just really you know, goes downhill fast. And now it's not unusual to find Guernsey incoherently drunk any time of day. And his house actually goes downhill from Silence of the Lambs, and now there's freshly boarded up windows, the empties are piling up outside, and there's garbage strewn around. But the thing that really summed up just how far off the rails Guernsey was was his dog. And he had this 100-pound German shepherd that he named Rommel, because I guess Hitler was taken. <laughs> and he, he just stopped letting the dog outside. And I knew the dog was still there, because I'd hear a window open up, and I'd see his pasty pale arm come out, holding this little pink plastic shovel filled with dog shit. And he'd flick and twist it out into the yard. And Rommel wasn't the only one that shitty things were happening to because the building that I was in was also going downhill and the, uh, the roof is leaking and there's plumbing problems. We asked Guernsey, you know, what's, what's going on? Or we, we asked him to fix it and he would get angry and he'd go into passive aggressive mode and say, I'm going to fix that next week or I've already called the plumber. And he had no intention of ever fixing anything. And the breaking point came when my, uh, my electric bill suddenly triples. And I traced the problem down in the basement, and it's this fire starter electrical hookup. He's got bare wires stuck into light sockets, and then the other end is stuck into uh, extension cords, and it's all tied through the rafters in the basement. And the end result was the uh, whole apartment building and his house is running off of my service. So I snap a few pictures of it. I'm thinking that might come in handy in court. And then I call him down there. And he looks at it and he says, he says, I'm, I'm shocked. Just shocked. I, I can't imagine who would do something like this. And he goes, it was Shannon. It had to be Shannon. And Shannon had just moved out of one of the first floor apartments. And he was this supermodel looking gay guy whose ass was far nicer than mine. And Guernsey was no fan of Shannon's because, miraculously, Shannon was able to not succumb to Guernsey's charms. <laughs> and I go, well, if that's the case, then you don't mind if I take it down. And I didn't wait for him to answer. I just started pulling the wires down, and I untangled the cords and stuff from the rafters. And when it was all on the floor, I said, hey, do you want, you want some help wrapping this up? And he said, no, 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 I'll take care of it. And he took care of it because... Two hours later, it's all back up. So when my next rent check is due, I deduct for the electric. And I send it with a letter that uh, explains why I made the deduction, that a letter that Guernsey could understand or maybe a judge could understand. And I send it registered mail. And the next time I see Guernsey, he comes flying at me. He's got veins popping, spit flying, He's yelling at me, who the hell do you think you are? You can't just deduct rent without clearing it from me. I want the full rent. I want it right now. And I said, Guernsey, I tried to talk to you about this. You've got my full rent. Read my letter. But I crossed the line. We were clearly at war. This was an unforgivable sin. So the next couple weeks were really tense. And every time we crossed paths... He would either pointedly ignore me or he'd point at me and he'd go, you've got five days, which five day notice is a thing. I don't think that's how it works. And 
I stopped parking my car behind the building because I figured that was an easy target. I put a deadbolt on the bottom of the back door to make it harder for him to kill me in my sleep. I put a baseball bat next to the bed as though that was going to work against bullets. So Guernsey knew that I came home late on Thursday nights. So one Thursday night at the, the, the height of our war, I stop and I pick up my girlfriend Cindy on the way home because, you know, I'm a hopeless romantic. And she had been there since the beginning. She was battle ready. So we park in the street and walk down the alley and we get to where we're turning from the alley into the backyard. And the backyard is completely lit up with floodlights. And the floodlights have never worked before. We walk to the back steps. The back steps are covered in beer cans, empty beer cans. There's a 30-pack of buds sitting there. There's like three left in it. And the lights are on in Shannon's old apartment, and the door's open. So Cindy and I pick our way through the beer cans. We go upstairs to my apartment, bolt the door behind us, and I walk straight through to the front. And I look out the front window, and I see a police car whip around the corner, and he stops right in front of the house. Two cops with guns drawn jump out, and they run toward the backyard. Cindy and I run back to the back door. There's three more police cars back there. Flashers on. We haven't been, even been in the apartment for one minute. All of the cops are out of their cars. They've got guns drawn. Guns are pointed at Guernsey. They're going, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. And where we're at, we can't see Guernsey on the steps, but we hear his gun clink in the empties. Two of the cops move forward. The rest of them keep their guns trained on him. And when we hear the handcuffs click, they all relax. So two of them are like, you know, directing Guernsey's stumble toward the police car. Third one has his gun. And we can hear Guernsey protesting that, officers, this is all very unnecessary. I was just having some cocktails. (laughs) So the neighbors and the cops tell us what they knew. And we tell them what we knew. And it seemed that Guernsey picked that night to settle our little tenant-landlord dispute. And he thought that the best way to ensure you know, that he would win would probably be to shoot me. So he puts on his best wife beater, he accessorizes it with a 38 and a shoulder holster, grabs his 30-pack, and goes to my back steps to wait. So he is deep into the 30-pack. And a kid on a bike, a neighborhood kid on a bike, came down the alley and turned toward the backyard. Guernsey jumped up, leveled the gun at the kid, but stopped when he realized that that wasn't his target. So he dramatically reholsters it. And the kid, who only lived a couple doors down, shoots down the alley, and his parents immediately call the police. So Guernsey, he finds himself on his feet for the first time in who knows how long. He's got like a tidal pool of Budweiser in him. And that, you know, you know that adrenaline rush you get by almost inadvertently murdering a neighborhood kid? <laughs> so he thinks this is a perfect time to take a leak, and he turns around and walks into Shannon's apartment. Exactly when he did that was when Cindy and I walked around the corner from the alley into the kill zone. So if Guernsey had had had, had one less beer, or if we had made one more stoplight on the way home, and especially if that kid hadn't come around the corner exactly when he did, Guernsey would have been sitting there on the back steps waiting for us with a hail of bullets. So the next day, before lunch, I found myself a new place. And I was able to frantically move out over the next two days before he even made bail. But of course, I had to see him one more time. And that was in court when he sued me. (laughs) How was your day today? The work they're doing at the Argonne Labs these days is amazing. Do you know about it? I've got guns. I'll sue your ass. I'll sue his ass. I'm, I'm going to sue you. I'll sue your ass. I'll sue his ass. I'm, I'm going to sue you. I'll sue your ass. I'll sue your ass. I'll sue his ass. I'm, I'm going to sue you. I'll sue your ass. I'll sue your ass. I'll sue his ass. I'm going to sue you. I'll sue your ass. I'll sue your ass. Put the gun down. I'm going to sue you. Put it down now. I'll sue your ass. Put the gun down. I'm going to sue you. Put it down now. Put the gun down. 
put the gun down! I'm going to sue Bullshit. you! Bullshit! Put it down now! Sue. Put the gun down! Put the effing gun down on the ground right now! So 2008, I was out to dinner with a woman, a woman named Beth, who I'd met in a pottery class, a straight woman. She thought I was straight, and I'm, I'm not... And I think she thought I was straight because I was talking about my partner, Jonathan, who I've been with for quite a while. She said, how did you two meet? Which is an innocuous question for most people. But for me, it's always represented this crossroads because I've always had to decide, well, do I tell the safe, sanitized version, which is real short? It's, oh, well, we met on Staten Island. We were neighbors. Or do I tell the real version about my backstory, which goes like this? In... (laughs) In the late 1980s, I moved to Staten Island with my girlfriend of four years, and it was a rocky relationship. And we had this neighbor who lived behind us, a woman named Courtney, who was dating this guy named Jonathan, and the four of us became friends, and we used to socialize, and then um, at some point, my girlfriend decided she wanted to move to California, and theoretically, I was going to follow her, but I wasn't quite ready, but I needed some place to live, so I moved in with Jonathan as a roommate. Jonathan was in the process of breaking up with Courtney, And I'd been living with him for three weeks when there was this incredible sexual tension that started appearing in the apartment, and one night we had to break it. And (laughs) that led to an affair, which led to a hideously ugly breakup with my girlfriend, but it all worked out because we're still together. (laughs) And as I told this story to Beth, um, her whole demeanor changed. She finally said, well, I can't relate to that at all. (laughs) I have never felt a flicker of attraction for another woman. I'd had evenings like this. I'd had reactions not exactly like this, but I'd been out with other straight women who I thought would make good friends, and I'd told the dangerous story. And sometimes the reaction had been, you know, they they thought I was flirting with them, so they would be interested, and I didn't want that at all. Or there was one woman who sort of saw it as a teaching moment, and so I was there to, you know, talk about the community and, you know, answer questions that I couldn't answer about all bisexuals. (laughs) And it was was a drag. I mean, the the common denominator was that it was always about them. It was never about me. The whole um, tenor of the friendship would change, and it would kind of get poisoned for me. Because there was always some agenda or tension there. And so after a while, I kind of um, soured on friendships with straight women and went back to superficial acquaintanceships because it was just easier. So, 2012, I went out to dinner with a new friend, Jessica, a straight woman, who I'd met through storytelling, which I'd just gotten into. And I had discovered in storytelling that it's a lot easier for me to get up onto a stage in a dark room in front of a bunch of strangers and talk into a microphone about my sexual identity than it is to talk across a table with someone. And the other revelation that I had was that I was up on stage telling all these secrets and all these other storytellers were up on stage telling all these secrets. And when it came to making friends with each other, this was... um, an enormously streamlined, um, convenient way to make friends because we already knew all this stuff about each other and there was already this foundation of trust established. So that's kind of where I was with Jessica. I didn't know her that well, but I was out to dinner with her and um, I was just about to you know, dig into my macaroni and cheese because at that point I needed food that was comfort food for these conversations. <laughs> and... I could feel a question coming on, and, and I, you know, I realized she'd heard me tell stories about being a lesbian, and she'd heard me talk about Jonathan, but she'd never actually heard me declare what I was. So her question was, so you're in a heterosexual relationship, but you define yourself as a lesbian? And I said, no, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> Seven years ago, it would have been ridiculous. Now, we're lucky, because we have all these nuanced ways to define ourselves, so I don't think it's ridiculous today. But... That wasn't the point. The point was that she was genuinely asking me a question because she just wanted to understand me. There was no other agenda, and it was really the first time that I had talked to a straight woman about my sexuality without it being emotionally fraught in some way. 
there was something about this that was enormously um, comforting. I felt this huge sense of relief. You know, I still felt anxious. I realized I was always anxious when I told the story, but after I'd got t- done telling it, I was always more anxious, but with Jessica, I was less anxious. And I also felt hopeful because I was thinking, well, if I can actually have a direct, neutral conversation with a straight woman about who I am, which is really all I ever wanted from any of these dinners, she can't be the only one. Maybe there are other people out there like this, and I've just been picking the wrong people. But then I immediately thought, oh, I wonder if this is limited to storytelling. Like, if out in the civilian world, among people who, you know, who aren't exhibitionists, if I'm still, this isn't going to be successful. So a couple years ago, 2017, I went out to dinner with Renee, a straight woman from work. So all of my other friends were in storytelling, so this was the first sort of friend material person I'd met outside of the storytelling realm. I was trying to stretch my wings. <laughs> and we were um, out to dinner in a sushi restaurant, and she was talking about her husband, and I was talking about Jonathan, and she said, so how did you guys meet? <laughs> and I thought for a moment, and I said, well, uh, in the late 1980s, I moved to Staten Island with my girlfriend, and it was a really rocky relationship, and we had this neighbor etc., etc., etc. And as I was telling the story, Renee's demeanor didn't change at all. She was like looking straight at me, but not revealing anything, except at some point when I got deeper into the story, she began to nod her head <laughs> very slowly. And it was unnerving. Because I didn't, I didn't know, I could see wheels turning, but I didn't know what was happening in there. And then we moved on to another subject. She didn't say anything about that. But a few minutes later, she said this to me. She said, when I was 11 years old, my mother developed a very aggressive breast cancer, and she died. And I got tested a few years ago for this um, gene and found out that I'm a carrier. And I did a bunch of research and eventually ended up getting a double mastectomy and complete breast reconstruction. And I still worry about getting other kinds of cancer, but... That's where I am. And I was so um, not expecting this that I said, I don't know what to say. And I watched Renee's entire demeanor change. And she couldn't meet my eye, and she started to close herself off. And I thought, oh, that was the wrong thing to say. And we wrapped up dinner and paid and said goodnight. And on the whole drive home, I was thinking, Jesus Christ, Julie, you really fucked that up. There were things I wanted to say, but I didn't think about the perfect thing to say until literally two hours later when I was walking upstairs on my way to bed, and I thought, this is what I should have said. Renee, I am so honored that you told me this, and I'm so amazed at your maturity and courage in facing this problem and not letting it impact your life um, or define it. And I just... Uh, I'm really grateful that you trusted me with this information. As it turns out, it didn't matter that I didn't say that that night or at any other time because we went on to share other things with each other and establish trust and make a friendship, and it was all fine. But I always really regretted that I hadn't had a chance to say that then, and it was never it never felt right to bring it up later. And I think sometimes you get second chances. And so a couple weeks ago, I knew that I was going to be in this show. And even though I'm not using her real name, I thought, well, I should share a draft of this story with her. So I sent it to her. And then we had this email exchange in which we were both transported back to that night in this sushi restaurant where I'm sitting on my side of the table. And I just shared something that's really scary and which has not turned out well in the past. I'm sitting there, and she's looking at me, and I can't figure out what she's thinking. And over on her side of the table, she's thinking, oh, bye. Okay. And then she's thinking, Julie didn't have to tell me all this. I mean, Julie could have just told me she was with a man, and I never would have been the wiser. And she could have done the thing that was socially and culturally easier for her, but she decided to tell me this. Julie is an authentic person. And I think anyone who shares something um, that potentially vulnerable deserves authenticity in return. 
So I think what was most eye-opening to me about this experience is um, that the thing I was most afraid of revealing to her was so inconsequential that she d- it wasn't even what she saw. These surface facts about ourselves aren't important to the people who become important to us, meaning intimacy I don't think is about sharing facts. I think it's about being seen. And the right people just know where to look. Thanks. is Risk. This is Swing Out Sister behind me now, and we just heard from the amazing Julie Threlkeld, who you can find at her website, which is modernstories.com. Before that, an interstitial by Risk fan Robert Fulham. And now I want to talk to you about how you don't have time to be going to the post office anymore. That's why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. You get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com, enter Risk. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from the last time that Risk was in Cleveland, Ohio. This is Regan Wan making her second appearance on the podcast. Regan actually teaches storytelling in Shelbyville and Louisville. Here is Regan Wan now with a story we call Are You Okay? In 2016, I was out on a date with my spouse. We have been together 25 years, so date nights are rare for us. We don't get to go out on very many of them. We have busy lives. And uh, we were really jazzed to be out together. And because we are also mega geeks, our chosen outing was to go see Star Trek Beyond. Now, we live in a small community in Kentucky, and we walked into the theater really excited and realized we were the only people in the theater, and we were like, no, we're really excited. Oh, my God, we get this place to ourselves. One other duo of people came in and sat behind us, but it was going to be a great night. So we were snuggled down in our seat, wrapped up around each other as if we had just met each other, and we were having a really good time just kind of being alone. We were making inside jokes. We were just enjoying the time together. So when we heard the voice begin, we kind of looked at each other like, what the fuck is that? 
because it sounded like a shtick. It sounded like a character from Seinfeld had come to Shelbyville, Kentucky, and was doing a whole thing. The theater that we were in had this long wall, and the seats were on one side of the wall, but there was this long hallway from the door on the other side. So we can't see what's attached to the voice. We just hear this voice. And the voice sounds like this. Oh, this is why I never leave the house. Oh, my leg, my leg, you're going to, I can't go that fast. I can't go that, you're just going to have to wait. I can't move that quickly. Oh, you have no idea how hard it is for me right now. You have no idea. This is why I don't go out. I told you I didn't want to go out. This is why I don't go out. You got to wait. I got to catch my breath. And then there's a pause. And then the voice starts again. You have no idea how much pain I'm in right now. Now it is bordering on ridiculous. Like it's not normal human behavior. This is really like, this is a high school kid and they are fucking with us. (laughs) They are in the drama club and they think this is fun and they are ruining our Tuesday night, which I am not okay with because this is Star Trek bitches. So I look at my husband and my husband looks at me and we start making jokes and we're like, (laughs) and so then the voice comes around that wall's corner and we are struck literally dumb because it is actually an old lady. And she's leaning against the wall going, I got to catch my breath. This is too hard for me. Oh my God, this is too hard for me. And we feel like assholes because it's an actual old woman. She's like real full-on Midwestern. She's got on the pastel matching like sweatsuit with the flowers but she's a mess. Like she's wearing house slippers and her hair's sticking up in every direction. And we're like, what the, but we feel like jerks. Cause clearly she's having a hard time, right? Like we're assholes. But then her companion comes around the corner. This person is clearly with her, but could not be less like her. If he tried, he's this very dapper old man. He's wearing literally a three piece suit, literally with a fedora. Clearly, he is not taking this seriously. There is nothing wrong with her because he's just walked by her. Meanwhile, like a cartoon character, now she's got both hands on the wall. She's like, I'll sit down in a minute. So we're making jokes and we're like, there but for the grace of God go us. Like, let us not be these old people. Holy cow. And Mr. Three-Piece Suit sits down right by the door. He sits at the nearest seat by the door. And she makes her way over and immediately begins complaining, oh, this seat is so uncomfortable. Why do movie seats have to be so uncomfortable? This popcorn is too salty. Oh, my God. And I'm choking on it. (laughs) I mean, it is a cartoon character. And we're laughing. And then the lights go down and the film comes up. And we lose ourselves in the world of Star Trek. We don't hear anything else during the rest of the movie. They're down there. The people behind us are behind us, and we don't think anything more about it. So we are the last people in the theater. We also clean up our own popcorn because we're good people in that sense. (laughs) So we go to go down to the bathroom, and I go to go down the women's, and this young woman comes flying out of the bathroom, and she is literally as white as a sheet. Like, I didn't know that was a thing until this night. There is no color to this poor girl. And she stops in front of me and she goes, you can't go in there. Someone has collapsed. Without batting an eye, my beloved husband goes, Reagan knows CPR. (laughs) So I was stuck. I walk into the bathroom not knowing what I'm going to find. And I say to the young woman, she's got a name tag on, so she clearly works for the theater. And I'm like, have you called 911? And she says, yes, I called them, but they're not here yet. And I'm like, yes, I can see that. Okay, let's go in. I walk into the bathroom, and there is, in fact, a body on the floor, face down, in a pool of blood. The body is half in and half out of the stall. The pants are down around the ankles. I'm looking, and I'm like, that is scary. And the girl's like, what do I do? And I notice that there are two other young women, very young women, kneeling on the floor. And one of them says, I'm a CNA, but I don't know what to do. In 
the part of the state that we live in, you can get your CNA while you're still in high school, and I don't know whether I'm looking at high schoolers or college kids, but they're kids either way, and I'm like, all right, let's do this thing. So you, manager girl, and she at that moment goes, I just gave my two weeks. This is the worst night ever. And I'm like, I got to get you out of this bathroom. Could you go get us some gloves and some garbage bags? Awesome. Get out. So she runs away and the two girls on the ground say, we know CPR, but we don't think we can handle this. And I'm like, okay. So that's when I notice that old man is leaning against the bathroom sink. The old dapper man wearing his fedora is leaning against the bathroom sink. And I look on the floor again And it is the pastel sweatsuit. That is the woman that I'd been making fun of in our movie. I'm not thrilled about that. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. But the blood is real. So I got to do something. And I look down, and that's when I notice that her neck is at a very odd angle. I'm going to be honest, I panicked a little bit inside. I hesitated. Because what you got to do is you got to find out if the person's breathing. And nothing that I did could identify whether she was breathing or not. I could not find a pulse. Her neck was at the wrong angle and her arms were under her body. I could not get anywhere to find a pulse. And I knew I had to turn the body over, but I was terrified because if I turned the body over and her neck was broken and that was the thing that was wrong, I was going to make it worse. And I didn't know what to do. And I'm not a medical professional. And I've had my CPR certification since I was 18 years old so that I would never, ever, ever in my life have to use it. And this was not fair. (laughs) But there's nothing I can do. And those girls on the ground are terrified. And the man is standing there silently. And he's actively avoiding eye contact with me. And I don't know why. So I shrug my shoulders and I say, all right, girls, one on each arm. I'm getting in the stall. And I literally have to climb up on the toilet and grab her naked legs and lift her up. Thank God. God, she had not gone to the bathroom on herself. So I lift her by her thighs and I start to take her out and her pants are down around her ankles, but her panties are at her knees. And it's the first time I see the old man's eyes move. We get her out of the stall. We do the one, two, three and flip and we flip her over and he looks at her crotch. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we could, uh, we could do with a little dignity here. So I just kind of scoop up her panties and get them up on her. I don't even try for the pants. But then I look at her face. This was not a living person. But I look at the man, and he's still not making eye contact with me. There's nothing to do but try, right? You have to try. This poor girl is already kneeling next to her shoulder, and she looks at me, and we have a moment, and she kind of nods like, yeah, I understand that this woman is dead. And I'm like, okay. So we get side by side, shoulder to shoulder on the ground, and we both assume the position to give compressions. And she says, I'm going to start, but I may need you to take over right away, okay? And I say, okay, I'm right here for you. I got you, okay? And she says, okay. And I'm like, go. She does the thing. She does the first compression, And that chest does the thing that they tell you in every CPR is going to happen. Every freaking rib shattered. And we're like, ah! And we look at each other and shrug, and she shrugs, and she's like, okay. And she goes back in. And she delivers about three or four compressions. And I'm ready. And I've got my hands right next to hers. I'm like, I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. And she's like, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. And that's when we hear from way far away, the manager screaming, EMS is here! And she's moving further away and then closer. Like she went and got them and brought them to us. And EMS comes charging into the room like the heroes that they are. And the first guy through into the room takes one look at the body on the floor and he looks at me and the girl doing compressions and he shakes his head just the tiniest amount. And we kind of nod like, yep, we know. So we get up. And at that moment, the old man who has not said one word, not one word this entire night says, I'm a doctor.
Now, I'm not going to lie to y'all. I've been really mad in my life a few times, but I have never experienced white hot rage so quickly and so intensely as in that moment when I looked at that old man who's looking at the EMT, making eye contact for God's sake, saying he's a doctor. And you know what really, really makes me mad about that? His wife was dying when she walked into the movie theater two and a half hours before I'm kneeling in a pool of her blood. He knew. He had to have known. Did he not care? Did he have Alzheimer's? Did he know that she was dying and want to give her a good last night on earth? Was that a good last night on earth? I will never know the answer to this. And it drives me insane. It haunts me still. Because he made his wife's death the problem of other people. And he stood there silently. And he counted on our compassion to make the decision for whether or not someone was going to try to save his wife's life or not. I'm not okay with that. And I don't know what to do with it. I've tried to unpack it a lot. Hello, I'm up here now. But it's complicated. And I'll be honest with you, I resented the fact that I had to be there and do that. And I don't feel like a good person for admitting that. And as we were driving home, my husband used the word hero. And I was like, mm-hmm, pretty much just an asshole. But then I thought about it, and I was like, well, no, that is kind of what, I mean, I'm not going to claim hero, but I got in there, I did what needed to be done. Someone had to take charge of that room. Someone had to make sure we were all okay. Someone had to get her out of that stall and pull up her underpants and deal with that stuff. Someone had to do it. I did it. <laughs> but the fact that I have to carry around not knowing whether her husband actively killed her or not, That's unfair of him to put on me. His silence was unfair to put on those two girls kneeling on the floor with me. And it was unfair to put on that manager. Now, these stories are about what changes for us. I can't fix that. But I can tell you that I'm still terrified when I walk into long bathrooms like the one here. (laughs) There's that moment where I stop and I check all the stalls. Okay, it's okay. There's no one hanging out of one I can go in. I now know, though, that if there was someone hanging out of one, I would not hesitate. I would go straight to the body. That's something I know about me now. I wouldn't like it, but I would do it. So if one of you is planning to collapse tonight, wait until I'm in the bathroom. (laughs) The other thing that I know is that I'm a little bit more compassionate than I was. She was behaving like a caricature, but she was also a human being that was in the process of dying. I check on people more often, which is incredibly awkward. People don't like it. You walk up and you're like, you're walking a little slow. Are you okay? And they're like, fuck off. (laughs) But I do it because it's the right thing to do. Just because someone else is with them and not reacting to how they're behaving doesn't mean that something isn't happening. So I ask of you to check on each other a little more too. And if you see me hanging out of a stall, go get my husband first, okay? (laughs) Thank you very much. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Cassandra Wilson behind me now, and we just heard from Reagan Juan. Look up Reagan's show 
telling tales in Kentucky. Listen, folks, if you don't follow me and if you don't follow Risk on social media, get on it. I am at the Kevin Allison on Twitter and Instagram, and Risk is at Risk Show in those same places. You know, that's where you can always get information about stuff like where we're coming next and when we're calling for pitches at risk-show.com slash tour. And don't forget, we teach storytelling. One-on-one sessions over Skype. There's our video courses that you can download and take in your own time. There are classes that we teach in person in New York, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis. And we teach corporate workshops. We've taught all kinds of great clients like Citibank and Pfizer and Google. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. So nice and plain Face it, you have a special place in your heart for oddballs on account of you being one. Richard, please don't talk. Can you do that? Can you not talk? Oddball!